for these uh, clearly modern Hindu theology seminars. Um, Anand Venkat Krishnan, all the way from Colombia and Baliol across the road. Um, he's going to talk about Sh Shiva and the Bible of Purana. Great topic. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. All is being recorded. Yes. It's being recorded. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, thank you for coming. And uh, the title uh, is uh, Shaivism and the Bhagavata Purana. Um, I'll be about 40 minutes, I think, between 40 and 45. I want to have some time for conversation and, and reactions and stuff. So certainly won't take the whole time, but uh, there's a fair bit to get through. It's new material. So hopefully uh, you'll bear with me. So, get started on time. If you disregard the no non-Hindus allowed sign and walk into the Rajarajeshwaran temple in Taliparamba in the Karnur district of northern Kerala, you'll see many standard features. Lush green lawns, old stone architecture, the occasional elephant munching on grass, low-tiled roofs housing an array of deities that surround the main shrine. Having paid your respects to the various yakshis and goddesses around the periphery, this is a Shiva temple after all, you proceed to the Namaskara Mandapam before the sanctum. And this is where things get a little strange. You walk over to the large decorative stone placed a few feet from the steps, the Valiya Balikal, which depicts the guardians of the shrine. Take a close look at the two main doormen, the Dwarapalas. One, as expected, is Bhutanatha, Shiva's trusty henchman and leader of his ghostly troops. But the second is a little boy playing the flute, legs crossed in a dancing motion. Other oddities remind you of Krishna as well. You witness the Abhishekam only to see that Shiva is not worshipped with bilva leaves, but with Tulsi. A loquacious old man pounces on your puzzled look and tells you the legend of the time when Mahalakshmi came to pay her respects, but entered the main shrine by mistake, seeing that Shiva had transformed himself into Vishnu. A Shiva who's not quite a Shiva, you think to yourself. Shaking your head, you walk down the road to the Trichambaram Krishna temple. Here, surely the iconography makes no mistake. The wood panels above the shrine are adorned with stories from the Bhagavata Purana. But then, the same old uncle, eager to share unsolicited information, sidles up behind you and says that the Krishna is in Raudra Bhava, a violent mood, having just slain the elephant Kuvalayapira before taking on his uncle Kamsa. To you, this sounds much less like the sweet, seductive Krishna of the Bhagavata Purana, and more like the fierce Bhairava that your smarta sensibilities had long thought to have been domesticated. The incorrigible uncle then points to an old tree that used to be frequented by an atyashrami, often understood in a general sense as a renunciate, but still the term of art in these parts for an atimarga pashupata ascetic. First a Shiva who's not quite a Shiva, then a Krishna who's not quite a Krishna, what the hell is going on? Now, it isn't exactly news that the worship of Shiva and Vishnu in pre-modern Kerala was mutually symbiotic. As Rich Freeman points out in his study of the Tirunirral Mala, a ritual text of the 13th century associated with the subaltern Krishna temple, 
The sectarianism so characteristic of Tamil Bhakti, particularly rivalry between Vaishnavas and Shaivas, was already being deliberately elided in Kerala at this early date. Less investigated is the question of how this mutuality, in both material and textual culture, might make us revisit certain historiographical commonplaces in Indian religion and philosophy. Today, I will complicate one such common-sense claim, that the Bhagavata Purana was the prerogative of Vaishnava religious communities. To be clear, I'm not saying that it was not. That's simply contrary to fact. I do want to provide evidence, however, for an alternative reception history of the Bhagavata Purana among two Shaivas of medieval Kerala, Purna Saraswati and Raghavananda, who lived near the Trichambaram Krishna temple in the 15th century. I locate these Malayali mavericks at the nexus of a number of philosophical and religious trends. The confluence of Vedic and non-Vedic non-dualism, Advaita, the encounter of a Kashmiri and a southern discourse on bhakti, and the proliferation of stotras, praise poetry of both Shaiva and Vaishnava persuasions. I argue that the interest these two maintained in recuperating Vaishnava bhakti in a Shaiva world is irreducible to the non-sectarian, universalist rhetoric of Advaitins, or Smartas, this broad term for Brahmin worshippers of several deities as the supreme. Both Purna Saraswati and Raghavananda had clearly received Shaiva initiation, or Diksha. But instead of subordinating Vaishnava scriptures, stotras, and stories, they grafted them onto a distinctive local configuration of Advaita, one that sought a rapprochement between the classical exegetical Vedanta of Shankara and his followers and the Shakta Shaiva Pratyabhijna non-dualism of Kashmir. Ultimately, I attempt to understand the local contours of Shaiva ecumenicism, one that engaged with the core texts of Vaishnavism not as subordinate in a hierarchically inclusive series or as subsumed <laughs> within the universalism of non-dualist philosophy, but as canonical and liberating in their own right. So the first section is on Purna Saraswati. It's called Poetry and Prayer. Recent studies have shown how the Bhagavata Purana's concept of bhakti overlapped significantly with Shaiva literature, in particular the Shiva Dharma corpus. Specifically, the emotional elements of bhakti that people like Friedhelm Hardy felt were unique to the Bhagavata, such as hairs raising on end, tears of bliss, the ecstatic experience of divine presence, these were all part of a shared language of bhakti between Shaiva and Vaishnava traditions. Others have discussed the distinctive tradition of non-dualist bhakti expressed in the genre of stotras, as composed and commented upon by Shaivas in Kashmir between the 10th and 16th centuries. These two bhakti traditions, the Bhagavata from the south and the stotras from the north, converged in Kerala in the 15th century, exemplified in the writings of Purna Saraswati. Better known in the history of Sanskrit literature for his commentaries on exemplary works of Kavya, Purna Saraswati was also very familiar with both Pratyabhikmya theology as well as classical Advaita Vedanta. In his commentary on Bhavabhuti's Malati Madhava, he sought to reconcile the two systems by elaborating on the philosophical language playfully embedded in the drama. Purna Saraswati was an unusual figure in the history of Sanskrit literary interpretation. In his reading of the Malati Madhava, each character becomes an allegorical representative of a divine being or a philosophical concept. He extended this allegory to Bhavabhuti himself, 
claiming not only was claiming that not only was he a paramahamsa, a renunciate of the highest order, but that he was communicating the secrets of tantric yoga practice that one should properly receive from one's guru, and that would ultimately lead to liberation. Buddha Saraswati was probably trained in a Shaiva monastery in the Kannur district, or at least studied with a Shaiva teacher, given his tantric textual repertoire. His own drama, the Kamalini, the Kamalini Rajahamsa, can be read as an allegory expressing the philosophies of Shakta and Shaiva Tantra. But according to N.P. Unni, before becoming a renunciate at the Shaiva monastery, Purna Saraswati was actually known as Vishnu. His elder brother, Divakara, described this Vishnu as one who adorned the family name with his pious deeds, the very personification of Vedic rites, who desired the joy of serving Shiva, Bhutesha. In the opening to Purna Saraswati's commentary on the Maladi Madhva, after invoking the form of Shiva known as Dakshinamurti, he imagined his own teacher, Purna Jyoti, as a manifestation of Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita, containing within himself the universal cosmic form. Moreover, he wrote a commentary called the Bhakti Mandakini on the Vishnupadadikesha Stotra, a hymn that described a visually entrancing Vishnu from foot to head. The Bhakti Mandakini envisions bhakti as a combination of several factors, yogic visualization, Vedantic allegorization, and aesthetic appreciation. In doing so, it encourages a devotional experience that Stephen Hopkins calls extravagant beholding, that holds intention together ideal visionary forms with the concrete material reality of the individual object of love. Hopkins discusses extravagant beholding primarily through Sri Vaishnava examples of the Padadikesha genre as composed by people like Venkatanatha. As Fred Smith notes, the Vishnu Padadikesha Stotra was probably used as a meditative text among certain circles of South Indian Vaishnavas. But the word certain bespeaks a spectrum that must have included or even foregrounded people like Purna Saraswati, Shaiva Vaishnavas with Advaitic affinities. Purna Saraswati assigns authorship of the hymn to the Advaita philosopher Shankaracharya. Now, Stotra itself was probably composed much later, but Purna Saraswati's attribution, like all apocrypha, is still historically meaningful. It shows not only that there was a vibrant memory of Shankara in his purported land of origin, but also a historically identifiable attempt to link that memory to a particular kind of bhakti. There is no doubt as to Purna Saraswati's Advaita affinities here. By Shankaracharya, he means the Shankaracharya, identified as the author of the commentary on the Brahma Sutras. He uses technical Advaitic terms to describe God as the apparent transformation, vivarta, of Supreme Brahman, defined as existence consciousness bliss, Satchitananda. And he subordinates the entire purpose of visualizing God to the traditional Advaitic practice of listening, reflection, and meditation, Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana. But Purna Saraswati's understanding of bhakti and the god to whom it is directed was derived not only from the classical tradition of Advaita Vedanta, but also precisely from those texts that were contested between Vedanta traditions, the Bhagavata Purana and the Vishnu Purana. He quotes the former no less than 52 times and the latter 75 times in the Bhakti Mandakini. But if the Bhakti Mandakini took a relatively sedate philosophical view of bhakti, Purna Saraswati exploited the erotic Bhagavata-esque motifs of bhakti in his Hamsa Sandesha, a lyric poem in the messenger genre. 
in the Hamsasandesha, a lovelorn woman enlists a goose to take a message to her faraway lover. At first we only know that she is longing for a certain hard-hearted lover, but in the tenth verse we discover that he is none other than Krishna, scion of the Vrishnis. The forlorn woman then guides the goose through all of the places my lover has loved. This route begins in Kantipuram, then glides over several Tamil Vaishnava hotspots, including Sri Rangam, the Kaveri and Tamraparni rivers, and even Arvar Tirunagari, home of the poet saint Namarvar. After a considerable detour through Kerala, during which he visits the temples at Trivandrum and Trichambaram, the goose goes directly to his final destination, which is none other than Brindavan. The message he delivers to Krishna locates the distress of his mistress in that particular narrative landscape created by the Bhagavata Purana. It brings up the Bhagavata's favorite stories, the felling of the two Arjuna trees, the lifting of Mount Govardhana, and Krishna's dalliances with the young women of the village Braj. At this point, in the goose's telling, the heroine daydreams that her divine lover briefly appears and tries to go in for an embrace, only to find her arms firmly crossed over her breasts and her eyes crimson, rimmed with tears. Your chest is splashed with saffron from all those gopis' breasts, she admonishes him. Don't let it get pale by rubbing up against mine. The tone of intimacy, withdrawal, and intense longing that characterizes bhakti poetry for Krishna in all languages comes to a stirring conclusion. And this is the first citation on your handout. You know how when dark Draupadi dragged about by dastardly devils in that great hall called out in duress, Krishna, 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 it reached your ears so far away? Well, I find it strange that you can't seem to hear the cries of this woman when you're sitting in her heart. Buddha Saraswati's bhakti was thus at once northern and southern. If the stotra genre took off in the far reaches of Shaiva Kashmir, it was followed by a profusion of works from the south that drew upon their own local resources. Vaishnava neighbors, Vedantic philosophy, and the Bhagavata Purana. Now this next section is on Raghavananda. It's called Raprashma and Religious Reading. The Bhagavata Purana may have been a spectral presence in Purna Saraswati's writings, but his close contemporary Raghavananda commented directly on the text. We don't know for certain that they knew each other, but there are enough signs to suggest that they were buddies. They both frequented the Trichambaram Krishna temple. Raghavananda's teacher actually died there. They both wrote commentaries on ostensibly Vaishnava stotras, and they both sought an explicit rapprochement between Pratyabhignya theology and Shankara's Advaita Vedanta. In this last respect, Raghavananda was much more forthcoming. In his commentary on the Laghustuti, a Shakta hymn shot through with the language of Trika, Raghavananda lays out his cards as an advanced reader of Pratyabhignya, familiar with the works of Kshemaraja, Utpaladeva, and Abhinavagupta. While he was initiated into sannyasa by one Krishnananda, and learned from him the Upanishads as well as Vedanta, he also records his attainment of the Shiva Paddhati at the hands of a guru named Anandanatha. Sounds like a high Shakta name to me. Um, the uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to interpret this term Shiva Paddhati, whether it should go, whether Paddhati should go as far as to mean 
uh, the particular esoteric ritual manuals associated with non-Saiddhantika Shaivism, or maybe just simply the way thereof. Either way, his command of this corpus and its transgressive practices is plainly evident in the commentary on the Lagustuti. Now, at the same time, and somewhat unlike his Kashmiri predecessors, Raghavananda tried to meld together the terms of classical Advaita Vedanta with the cosmology and philosophy of non-dual Shaivism. Um, and I, I mean, there is a degree of acknowledgement among Shaiva non-dualists that there is sort of overlap with mainstream Brahmanical Advaita Vedanta, but they, they were concerted to draw a line between the two. Uh, I mean, even Kshemaraja, who was probably the most accommodating, says, you know, the fundamental thing that distinguishes Shaivanandualism from the Vedantins is that the Lord, who is consists of consciousness, uh, he's constantly performing the five actions, right? So that there is a fundamental theological distinction between these two. We can't just um, mesh them together. Whereas Raghavananda, like I said, sort of tried to mold them together, and I'll show you how. So sometimes this melding was subtle, like adding sat, or existence, to Chidananda Kana, this official term for the dense mass of consciousness bliss that characterizes Shiva Shakti. But at other times, it was much more blatant, such as we find in his commentary on the Mukundamala, a famous Sanskrit hymn to Krishna from Kerala. On verse 17 of the Mukundamala, which invokes an Upanishad that says, Narayana is the highest reality, param tatvam, a rather literalist Shaiva objects. Again, this is in the middle of a commentary on a hymn to Krishna, okay? A literalist Shaiva objects that Krishna cannot possibly the highest cannot possibly be the highest tattva, right? Because he is identified with the Purusha tattva, a lower category on the hierarchy of thirty-six tattvas in the Shaiva tantras, beginning from right Paramashiva and then Shiva and Shakti and then so on, so up down the line. Now Raghavananda responds that there is in fact no higher principle than the Purusha, and that all talk of thirty-six tattvas actually in here, in the Purusha. Now, lest we think he's going to adopt this universalist rhetoric of mainstream Advaita Vedanta, right? that is like, we're all one, man. It's all the same. He follows with a very particular miscegenation of Shaiva and Advaita language. And that's the second quote on your handout. The Purusha, unfolding Kramamana in the pure, unbroken eye awareness, Aham Vimarsha, his very own self, the singular essence that is chit, sat, and ananda, sadananda, chidekarasa, non-conceptual, eternal, stripped of all dualities, he is described by those who speak of 25 tattvas, i.e. pancharatras, as narayana, and by the 36 tattva crowd, that is to say, agamic shaivas, as paramashiva. Now, what we have here is not a boring brahman standing above squabbling sectarians but rather an appeal to a specific Shaiva notion of the Supreme Person, fused with classical Advaita terms of art. What follows this is a dizzying transposition of the Shaiva hierarchy of tattvas and their operations onto Vedantic metaphysics and Upanishadic verses. So, Jnana Shakti becomes Sattva, Kriya Shakti becomes Rajas, Avarana Shakti becomes Tamas, and eventually Shiva Shakti and all the other pure tattvas in the top model uh, end up inhering within Purusha and Prakriti. Sort of very curious and strange model. Now, this passage is curiously paralleled in Raghavananda's commentary on the Laghustuti, remember the Shakta Shaiva hymn. 
the parallel suggests, at the very least, that he saw these hymns to Shakti and to Krishna as of a piece with one another, and importantly, as sites for the exact same exegetical practice. And it is precisely in the service of this attempted synthesis between a forbidding, austere, and firmly textual Advaita Vedanta and the positive, life-affirming, antinomian bliss of Tantric Shaivism, it is in the service of this synthesis that the Bhagavata Purana comes into play. Starting to get interesting? In the same way, it's getting interesting to me, in the same way that bhukti and mukti, ecstasy and liberation, were experienced simultaneously in non-dualist Shaivism. For Raghavananda, it was bhakti and mukti that was one and the same. For example, Raghavananda opens his commentary on the Mukundamala with verses from the 11th canto of the Bhagavata Purana that exalt bhakti above all other means to liberation. He then launches into a summary of classical Advaita teaching about the unity between Atman and Brahman, the illusory nature of duality, before quoting from the Samba Panchashika, a hymn from 8th century Kashmir, to express the non-difference, non-duality, between the act of praise, the one who praises, and the object of praise. He goes on to make no secret of his inspiration from the Pratyabhignya tradition, this time referring directly to Utpaladeva, in a long passage that's worth quoting in full, and that's number three. Here he says we must posit the following. Mukti, liberation, is the direct unmediated awareness of Brahman as pure inner consciousness. Brahman that has the form of the singular essence that is existence consciousness bliss, right? Sachidananda Characterized as being the cause of creation, preservation, and dissolution of the world. This awareness has as its source the great statements of the Upanishad, such as that you are, Tatomasi. Bhakti, for its part, is a certain unprecedented vision, a splendorous joy in the mind, which manifests through such signs as hair standing on end, tears falling, and staring with mouth agape. It appears at the exact same time as when both one's unsurpassed veneration and faith in God, as well as one's unsurpassed love grounded in the self, culminate in the undivided unity of Atman and Brahman. There is thus a mutual recursion of the manifestation of this eternal, unsurpassed love. And for that very reason, since they have the same cause, occur at the same time, and operate in the same locus, and have the same object, bhakti and mukti are one and the same, from the perspective of absolute truth, but that they are different in empirical experience. Therefore, it's appropriate to say that the choice of one or the other is simply a matter of desire, because when one is achieved, the other is inevitable. So we have a Puranic quote, a veritable Upanishad, the Bhagavad He says, Bhakti, experience of God, and disdain for other things, all three appear at the same time. And it is precisely with this in view that the revered author of the Shiva Stotravali, Utpaladeva, proclaimed, Lord, you, are, you alone are the self of all, and everyone loves themselves. People will really flourish if they realize that bhakti for you is spontaneous within their own nature. Those who proper with the wealth of bhakti, what else can they pray for? Those who are impoverished without it, what else can they pray for? So again, the explicit uh, parallel between the Bhagavata and um, uh, uh, Pratibhikna works like the Shiva Stotra. Now, needless to say, this sort of thing is not what you would expect to see from an Advaitin in the Shankara mold. This idea that bhakti and mukti are one and the same, 
uh, and that both map onto uh, the realization of Brahman. Now, let's be clear. Raghavananda did know his Shankara very well. And more than that, he also knew his Prakashatman and his Sarvaknyatman and several other votaries of so-called classical Advaita Vedanta. He knew them so well, in fact, that it's possible that he inherited a local Advaita teaching tradition that may have extended to the historical Shankara himself, purported to be from Kerala. And when you think about the historical Shankara, stripped of the Shakta and Shaiva hagiographical apparatus that attached itself to, to him from around Raghavananda's time, you no doubt recall Paul Hawker's argument that Shankara himself probably belonged to a Vaishnava milieu. There's this quote from Paul Hawker where he says radical Advaitism was cultivated in Vaishnava circles, um, and this fact is borne out by texts that expressly profess Vaishnavism and teach radical Advaita at the same time, such as the Bhagavata Purana, he lists Paramartha Sara and Vishnu Purana and so on. Um, now, Raghavananda himself was a participant in this tantricization of Shankara, together with his counterparts in Sringeri further north, where Shankara was retrojected onto the foundational moment of the Vijayanagara Empire. But, in, like, in light of Hakar's comments, it seems almost as if Raghavananda were trying to recuperate the radical roots of Vaishnavism. He comments on precisely the texts that Hakar points out. He comments on the Bhagavata Purana, he comments on the Paramartha Sara, and he comments on various Vaishnava Stotras, all while conscious of his commitment to multiple non-dualisms. How did he pull this off? I suggested that the Bhagavata Purana was central to the whole enterprise. Raghavananda's most ambitious writing project was a commentary on it called the Krishnapadi. He tells us straight away, commenting on the first verse of the Bhagavata, that the Purana is the essence of all Shrutis, all Smritis, Itihasa, Purana, Kavya, Nataka, Mimamsa, Uttara Mimamsa, the Sattvata Samhitas, Shiva Agamas, etc., etc., etc. Now, to regard the Bhagavata as the quintessence and culmination of all scriptures, whether Vedic or Tantric, was not necessarily unique. The Bhagavata itself places itself among the firmaments as the most precious of all scriptures and the culmination of them all. Perhaps it's unusual for a Shaiva, but what is most interesting, at least to me, is what Raghavananda found most interesting about the Bhagavata Purana. And it had nothing whatsoever to do with theology. Among the no- many noteworthy features of this Krishnapadi commentary, is its repeated emphasis on the literary quality of the Bhagavata as its most distinguishing and superlative feature. Purna Saraswati may have been the more accomplished literateur, but Raghavananda was equally versed in Sanskrit aesthetics, and it shone through, across, and upon his religious and philosophical writings. Raghavananda introduces the second verse of the Bhagavata with a question that's seemingly straight out of the Kavya Prakasha, How does the Bhagavata purport to tell us about the Supreme Truth? Is it as a master, Prabhu, a relative, Bandhu, or a lover, Kanta? Each of these is already covered. The first by the Veda, the second by the epics and Puranas, and the third by Kavyas like the Ramayana. His answer is that the Bhagavata Purana is a combination of all three. He says the first two padas of the verse, the first two quarters, tell us respectively that the Purana is the essence of both the Karmakanda and Jnanakanda, therefore stands in for the entirety of the Veda. The third quarter, the third pada, shows that the Bhagavata is both the essence of the epics and Puranas, 
and distinct from them, insofar as it says that bhakti for God, bhakti that is the central deity of absolute oneness, kaivalya mula devata, fascinating term, that bhakti is in and of itself the most important thing. But the final pada, which should probably begin with Ishvara from the end of the third pada, right? So, Ishvara sadhya hridya varudhyate that's the final pada with Ishura taken from the final part of the third pada. This this quarter distinguishes the Bhagavata from every other kavya because it's the Bhagavata subject is God. And here Raghavananda pauses to ensure we understand this claim in detail. And what is the claim? The claim is that the Bhagavata is better than all other kavyas, and therefore it's the most important. Uh, he pauses to ensure we understand this claim because it was central to why he considered the Bhagavata so important and so unique. And that's the next quote on your handout. Like a lover, Kantavat, this book right here instantly attracts the hearts of listeners for the following reasons. A. It does not have aesthetic flaws, such as being harsh to the ears. B. It contains qualities, excellent qualities of sweetness and so forth. C. It ex- displays the rasas of Shringara and all the others. D. It has ornaments of both sense and sound, shabda and arthalankara, like alliteration, verbal distortions, as well as simile, illustration, and so forth. And E. It reveals something unprecedented. As a result, even people who delight in sensual pleasures, who apply themselves to it with faith, will become clear-headed in no time. They then shackle God to the posts of their heart with the chains of bhakti. Other books like the Kadambari may be charming to listeners, which is why it is said in this verse that God is locked up in the heart in that instant. Those other books only exemplify rasas that have external objects as their basis, alambara. So reading them only increases attachment to the senses. But here the basis, alambara, is God, <coughs> defined as the inner reality, pratyaktatva. So the more you read it, the less interest you have in worldly objects, and what arises is attachment to the self, which is not an object of sense at all. Now, even though the Ramayana is a kavya that relates to God, it does not instantly produce Krishna Bhakti, because Vira Rasa and others are predominant in it. But the Bhagavata was written with Bhakti Rasa at its very core, which is why it surpasses everything else. Okay, now there's a whole lot to say about the treatment of Bhakti Rasa in this Krishna Padi, but I don't have time to do that. So suffice it to say here that it was desperately important to Raghavananda to identify all the ways in which all the Rasas were invoked in every chapter in order to lend overall coherence to the Bhagavata as a work of literature, as a work of Kavya proper. This is important. As far as I know, he's the only commentator to talk about the Bhagavata in terms of an inner and an outer rasa. At the end of the first canto, he says that the Bhagavata's inner rasa is the experience of the bliss of Brahman, Brahmananda Anubhava. For its basis, Alambana again, is the inner truth, Pratyaktakva. And even though it is the inner rasa that's intended to be understood throughout the whole book, the outer rasa is also revealed as a means to achieving that. That outer rasa, he says, is a bhakti rasa, dashamavida, so tenfold bhakti rasa, which he goes on to detail. Possibly following Hemadri and Vopadeva, he accepts bhakti rasa here as a type of rasa alongside Shringara and the rest. Perhaps there's also an echo of concepts of bhakti rasa that were incipient in the praise poetry of the Shaivas of Kashmir. Of course, none of this stuff would become systematized until it finally reached the Gaudiya Vaishnavas in the 16th century. But 
For the purposes of my argument that Raghavananda saw the Bhagavata Purana as an extension and perhaps a culmination of his Shaiva Shakta commitments, it's enough to show that he reproduced this concern with the aesthetic coherence of the text almost verbatim in his commentary on the Laghustuti. There, it is precisely such coherence that makes the Laghustuti unimpeachable from any angle. For, as he says, and this is the next quote on your handout, in the Shruti, we hear of Shiva Shakti, the ultimate reality principle, the form of unbroken bliss consciousness, Akhandananda Samvit, as being the primary rasa, mukhya rasatvena. The quote being, it is the quintessence of the essences, saesha rasanam rasatamaha. That truth, together with its bhakti rasa, is displayed here throughout as predominant, and other rasas have been expressed as subsidiary ornaments to it as and where appropriate. Because it commences with bhakti rasa and concludes with bhakti rasa, upakrama upasamhara, we trust that this composition has that as its purport. Now here and there we also find similes, as well as ornaments of sound, like alliteration, tenderness, and so forth. Now clever people will also find it manifestly clear that it is a chitrakavya, given its puzzling syntactic construals and hidden phoneme constructs. Therefore, because it has no aesthetic flaws and contains both aesthetic virtues and rasa, we maintain that everybody should read it. Now, these final three terms, nirdoshatva, sagunatva, and sarasatva, are precisely the ones that appear at the end of Raghavananda's commentary on the second verse of the Bhagavata, with the addition of saalankaratva, hewing even more closely to the classical definition of good kavya in Bhoja's Saraswati Gantabharana. Right, so the second verse of the Kantavana. Nirdosham gunavat kavyam, alankare ralankatam, rasanvitam kavikurian, kurvan kirtim pritim cha vindati. Now, it was incumbent on Raghavananda in the end to experience religious texts and the truth of which they spoke as literature. This was the way to hold together earthly joy and transcendent bliss, more immediately than any one theological stance would offer. The Bhagavata was the perfect candidate. And why not? Considering he spent much of his scholarly career reading over the highlights of Sanskrit poetry, it was probably not subjective fancy that prompted Daniel Ingalls to call the Bhagavata the most enchanting poem ever written. So this final section, conclusion, a whole new world. Now, you might object that this is all very interesting, but extremely provincial. Raghavananda's writings did not circulate outside Kerala, as far as we can tell, and no other doctrinaire Shaivas seem to have taken up the Bhagavata cause. A fair comment, if not entirely a criticism. After all, the point of alternative or minority histories is to show that the history we narrate is not nearly as comprehensive as it claims. Now first, let's note that Purna Saraswati and Raghavananda did not either emerge from or write into a vacuum least of all in the rich, multilingual literary world of pre-modern Kerala. On the vernacular side, the poet Cherishedi composed his Krishna Gatha in the 15th century, what some have called the most extreme example of the medium of Malayalam and the poetics of Sanskrit cohabiting the same genre. The Krishna Gatha was ostensibly an adaptation of the Bhagavata, but included the idioms and themes of Malayalam courtesan literature, fusing bhakti with a secular eroticism. 
This complex social context of bhakti literature in Kerala, expressed differently across and between caste communities and linguistic registers, would continue into the 16th century and beyond. Consider Pundanam Nambudri, a Brahmin who translated the Krishna Karnamrata, which I'll discuss later, into Malayalam at the behest of his non-Brahmin friend, and whose Jnanapana was an independent treatise that casts a fusion of Advaita and Bhakti into the simple song form of the Pana chant. Or consider Pundanam's contemporary, Tunjate Aritachan, a low-caste poet and scholar who quite possibly resided in the Shaiva monastery near Palakkad, and composed the Harinamakirtanam, a similar fusion to the Jnanapana that simplified Vedantic teachings for a subaltern audience, an anti-bourgeois Hinduism, if you will, Pake Brian Hatcher. No doubt, when taken together, it was works such as these that set the stage for the more famous versions of the Bhagavata in Kerala, most recognizable among which was the Sanskrit Narayaniyam by Melputur Narayanabhatta in the late 16th century. But there are other curious affinities of this local history with the later, more well-known trajectory of the Bhagavata in northern India. One of the most interesting sources of praise poetry in Kerala at the nexus of Shaivism, Vaishnavism, and Advaita Vedanta was the 14th century poet Lilashuka Bilvamangala. His two stotras, the Bilvamangala Stava and the Krishna Karnamrata, quickly spread through the south. That Bilvamangala was, like Purna Saraswati, a Shaiva in love with Vishnu, can be inferred from his confession in Krishna Karnamrata 2.24. That's the first one in the table. I'm a Shaiva, for sure. There's no doubt about it. Devoted to chanting the five-letter name, Panchakari. And yet my heart dwells on the farmer's wife's boy whose smiling face blooms like the Atasi flower. That's not all. Bilva Mangala was also an Advaitin, one of a strangely familiar stripe, as he tells us in the Bilva Mangala Stava. That's the next poem on the table. We'd set out to travel on Advaita Road, initiates at the throne of our own inner bliss, when a trickster forced us to be his slaves, the one making love to the farmer's wives. This, now, the mention <coughs> of uh, initiation and inner bliss, the, the, the line is Svananda Simhasana Labda Dikshaha, reminds us of Raghavananda's Shaiva non-dualism, and the poem dramatizes his captivation with a visual, with a visually entrancing Krishna. Now, by the early decades of the 16th century, Bilva Mangala's poems found their way northeast to Chaitanya and the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, supposedly as a result of Chaitanya's southern travels, so says the hagiographer. There's another fascinating link between the Shaivism of Kerala and the Gaudiya Vaishnavas that has yet to be fully understood. Much of Raghavananda's commentary on the Bhagavata, the Krishnapadi, overlaps almost verbatim with a commentary by his rough contemporary, Lakshmidhara, called the Amrita Tarangini. Now, I say this link is only tenuously established because I might be the first to have discovered it. Um, I have one <coughs> of three extant manuscripts of the Amrita Tarangini, which mostly survives in manuscript libraries of the South. Now, this is odd because Lakshmidhara was, by all accounts, a resident of Gaudadesha, author of such works as the Bhagavan Nama Kaumadi, and Advaita Makaranda, the former of which, the Kaumadi, had a significant afterlife among the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. So, 
quoted repeatedly across the Goswami's works. It's an open question whether Raghavananda was reading Lakshmitra, or maybe vice versa, or if they were drawing on an earlier tradition of Advaita commentary on the Bhagavata Purana. I think both are possible for some reasons I won't get into today, but what's most intriguing is that these commentaries seem to entirely bypass or ignore Sridhara Swami, whose Bhavartha Deepika remains the earliest extant and most popular commentary on the Bhagavata Purana. They don't care about Sridhara whatsoever, it seems. Could this parallel Advaitic exegesis of the Bhagavata Purana, whose echoes survive in the writings of Raghavananda and Lakshmidra, have also been a Shaiva one? I'm willing to raise the possibility because I keep finding strange many-headed creatures, Shaiva Vaishnavas, Advaitic devotees, Easterners from the West and Southerners from the North. If they seem fantastic and mysterious and inexplicable, Perhaps it's because we've been asking the wrong questions, looking in the wrong places. For all of his considerable erudition, the great scholar Friedhelm Hardy was disappointingly general when it came to the medieval history of the Bhagavata Purana. Except for one brilliant article on the ascetic Madhavendra Puri, a possible link between South Indian Pakti and Bengali Vaishnavism, Hardy repeated what has become a conventional understanding of the Bhakti movement associating the proliferation of Vaishnava traditions of Vedanta with structural similarities between vernacular bhakti poets. Perhaps, if he had lived long enough, he might have turned his attention to the Shaivas that lined the road. But his absence, like the early afterlife of the Bhagavata Purana, leaves a gap in history that is difficult to fill. Thank you. <coughs>